Well, good morning. You can go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 9 this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. As you open your Bibles, I wanted to uh, ask you a question. What do you think your reaction would be as if uh, maybe after church this Sunday you go out to grab a bite to eat before heading over to our baptism service and you show up to the restaurant and you look over and you, you see me, maybe you see my family there having lunch with a known drug dealer. Chuckle a little bit. Or what if you saw another family from church sitting and eating ice cream with a person you knew to be involved in prostitution? What would your response be? Be shock? Would it be a little bit of gas? Would you feel the need to, as soon as possible, make sure that I knew that they knew who it was that I was associating with? Would it affect how you think about that person who's sitting there? Would it affect how you think about me, my family? You know, there's a natural tendency to avoid those who do not share the same values, who maybe even their sinful lifestyles and choices make us uncomfortable. I mean, we've been told since childhood to be careful about who we keep company with, right? And yet that tendency, tendency to avoid those, particularly those who are caught up in sin, because it makes us uncomfortable, is itself sinful. It's indicative more of the hypocritical Pharisee than of a repentant disciple of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to look at two events from the Gospel of Matthew which are woven together to highlight the attitude and the response that a true disciple of Jesus Christ should have toward sinners. So that we would avoid the same hypocrisy, the same spiritual malpractice of the Pharisees and instead obediently proclaim the gospel to those who are truly spiritually sick and needy. So if you haven't already turned there, open your Bibles to Matthew 9, and we're going to start in verse 9. There we read, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And so he got up and followed him. Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? Then, but when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Pray with me. Father, as we look at this text, as it perhaps will make us a little bit uncomfortable this morning, I pray that your spirit would work within each of us, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, and that we would be quick to respond, to orient our thinking and our behavior and our actions around what you desire from us, what you've instructed of us, that we would be obedient disciples, faithfully proclaiming the glory of Christ to a world that, that needs to know about this great physician, this healer of the soul. Pray this in your name. 
Amen. Well, as I mentioned already, our text this morning weaves together Matthew's calling and his response, his response to that calling, and the immediate aftermath of the transformation of his life with Jesus' exposing of the spiritual malpractice of the Pharisees. You may remember last week I noted that Matthew's arranging of the events in Capernaum here in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew is a little bit more thematic, and it's not always in strict chronological order. And we noted that we do the exact same thing when we tell a story or we want to highlight some specific thing that was done. And we may have gone again on a trip and you might describe first the places you ate, then the activities that you did, and then maybe a few funny anecdotes. And all of which took place, all of them are true, and their orders just arranged by the theme and only loosely around chronology. In this instance, the calling of Matthew likely occurred shortly before the back-and-forth trip across the Sea of Galilee that we looked at a couple weeks ago, and Jesus' calming of the great storm on the sea. Now, having just concluded what we looked at last week, where Jesus exemplified his authority to forgive sins, notice what Matthew does. Immediately on the heels of this, arranging it a little bit more thematically and closely related and close, closely timed events, Matthew just rearranges it because he wants to emphasize something, that he is also that great sinner in need of forgiveness. So he places his salvation, his calling, immediately after showing Jesus' great power to forgive sin and call a sinner to repentance. Matthew himself is the needy sinner in need of the Savior's calling. Verse 9 opens with Jesus seeing this man called Matthew, as we read. This man is in the tax collector's booth. He is, in fact, a tax collector. And upon seeing him, Jesus says simply, follow me. And notice Matthew's response. There was no question. There was no equivocation. He got up, he rose, and he followed him. Notice also the play here. Do you remember what happened last week when the sinner was healed, the paralytic was healed? What did he do? He got up, he arose, and went. Jesus continues to tie in and wants to make it abundantly clear here. And Matthew, in his arranging this, makes it abundantly clear that this salvation, this authority, is tied to everything that has transpired thus far. There's this continued play upon words and phrases that lump together this salvation and the great power and authority that are in the words of Christ. So that all he has to do is say, follow me. And the heart is transformed, and Matthew rises to follow him. On the surface, is calling a Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, or who become one of Jesus' 12 apostles, that is the inner group of the disciples, seems straightforward. But we need to take a trip again back to first century Galilee and Israel to look at the implications of what has just taken place in just this one verse. Again, we note that Matthew was in the tax collector's booth. He's a tax collector. Even without understanding all of the implications of a tax collector in first century Israel under Roman occupation, just saying that he is a tax collector probably leaves a little bit of a sour taste in your mouth. We all understand the reality and the need to pay taxes, but I doubt any of us enjoy that experience. But as bad as we think we might have it, it doesn't even begin to compare to taxes and tax collectors of Jesus' day. Capernaum, backing up a little further, was an extremely important city. 
at this time. It was situated on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, as you may recall. It was on the border between Herod and Philip's districts. In addition to a thriving fishing industry, it was also situated right near close proximity to what is called the Via Maris. It's an ancient highway. It met up as it continued east with the King's Highway. It was the main trade route through which travelers had come for thousands of years to do their trade from Egypt to the ancient Near East, to Babylon and Persia and beyond. And so it was an importantly crucial point. So you're transitioning from one district into another, so it's time to collect your tolls, your embargoes, your tariffs. You inspect anything undeclared, tax collectors could just take. So you had to be careful to declare all of your goods, all of your merchandise, otherwise they would claim deception and keep it for themselves. Tolls and tariffs would have been collected on anything coming by sea or by land. So they needed these tax collectors. It was a busy highway. They needed a lot of them. Being a tax collector for travelers through Capernaum was an important task. It was an important position, even though it was a despised one. Well, how did one become a tax collector? Well, under the Roman system, individuals would bid on the right to indirect taxes. In other words, they would basically pay some of the taxes up front that then they're going to go collect. And the Romans or the local rulers, such as Herod Antipas, would assign those rights to collect taxes, award the contract to the highest bidder or bidders, who would then seek to recover all of that money as best as they could, and they were given a lot of freedom in how they collected those taxes. A lot of authority, a lot of overreach. You can imagine the temptation that a system like this would have and would feed for those who are particularly oriented towards greed. Such a system would tempt these tax gatherers and tax collectors to abuse their office, indulge in the natural human tendency toward greed and pilfering. And it's for that very reason that tax collectors were despised across the ancient world. They were not known as the most honest persons. It wasn't a uniquely Jewish phenomenon either. Egyptian records of Roman rule describe these tax collectors and their abuses, describing one example of beating an old woman because her relatives were behind on taxes. As far as I know, the IRS hasn't lowered themselves to this level. Tax collectors were universally despised, often hated, rarely looked at as anything other than a scourge on society, maybe a necessary scourge, but certainly a scourge. And the stigma associated with tax collectors meant that if someone was going to willingly choose this occupation and go bid to become a tax collector, think about this for a second, they had to be perfectly fine with the stigma that would be attached to it. Now the only way that's going to happen is if they loved and craved wealth and money and the power that came with it above all else. They had to be perfectly content being despised by the community they were going to live in, by the people they were going to see day after day, going around, choosing to live life with a scarlet letter on their chest. As Keener notes, they were considered as unclean as the lepers who communicated impurity to a house simply by entering it. So the Pharisees and other religious leaders so despised these tax collectors, particularly because of their dishonesty, that they said 
Whether it's a leper that comes into your house or a tax collector, the house is impure and has to be purified. Now, despite the general hatred and disgust towards tax collectors, they were usually quite well off. Both secure in protection from Rome or the local authorities, combined with the wealth that they grew through extortion, bribery, and legalized robbery. Notice, then, Matthew's response. And it's short. doesn't actually say that he said anything. What does he do? He immediately stands up and leaves. There's no sense of begrudging reluctance over the wealth, the potential security. There's no hesitation about what he's leaving behind. No worry about the physical or financial security he's abandoning. He immediately follows Christ. It's likely that Matthew had already heard something of the ministry of John the Baptist. Perhaps he'd even wandered out to listen to a sermon or two in the wilderness. May have even been among the crowd who listened to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. But it's here we see the moment in verse 9 where Matthew responds to the call of Jesus and becomes a disciple. Matthew likely left behind more than any of the other disciples in terms of worldly comfort, wealth, and security. The fishermen kept their boats. We know this because even after Jesus' resurrection, during that time, you remember, they went back to their fishing occupation for a while. They had something they could fall back on if they needed to. But for Matthew, he would never again be allowed to have his job as a tax collector. And then add to that the stigma he had gained as a tax collector, there was no way he was going to find a job in that town ever again. He gave it all up. And yet there was no hesitation. It's the response of true discipleship. Doesn't mean that we always know the answer. It doesn't mean we don't struggle at times with fear and doubts as the disciples did while on the sea. But it does mean that you don't look back. There's no wishing to return to life before following Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus said in Luke 9.62, No one after putting their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, Matthew's responded to the call, and Jesus has now added to his disciples and specifically to his inner circle that would become the 12 apostles. Matthew's joy and excitement, it wasn't just the immediacy. It was the joy and the excitement is now illustrated at this transformation, this calling, this new life of discipleship that leads him to host a feast to celebrate this new life and to share it with others. Verses 10 through 11 describe Jesus reclining in the house. Luke tells us this was Matthew's house. We have the definite article there in Matthew saying the house. He just, again, there's a humility in the way Matthew's presenting this, which, by the way, adds to the authenticity that it's Matthew who wrote this, and that he continues to put himself in the background. First, he arranged himself as a great sinner in need. Now, he's not even bothering to mention he's the host and everything else. It's implied and it's implicit, but... Luke makes it very clear, this is Matthew's house. And they were eating with them tax collectors and sinners. Perhaps it was because of his previous occupation, but Matthew had no concept, or no concern, I should say, of social stigma, no concern for what others would think about the persons that he was having in his house. He had grown quite accustomed to this, so it probably wasn't a big deal. And these are likely persons that he was already well acquainted with. 
as one who already had this social stigma, what is it to associate with sinners? But notice Matthew's only concern is in celebrating his forgiveness of sins and proclaiming it to those who need it. This is the proper response to salvation and to discipleship. It's celebration as well as proclamation to those around. Matthew was excited to share his conversion and his discipleship. Well now, in the midst of describing this joyous setting, this joyous occasion, this proclamation of discipleship, then Matthew introduces another group of persons, only to have them try to throw a wet blanket on the celebration. These are, of course, the Pharisees. If you want to ruin a good party, you invite the Pharisees. They could not find a group who were more opposite the tax collectors, at least socially. Whereas a tax collector brought impurity upon entering a house, having a Pharisee would be an honor. It might raise your social standing. Well, Matthew introduces these Pharisees as they are speaking to Jesus' disciples. And you notice that it's phrased as a question, and yet it's really much more of an accusation, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that if you want to shut down a conversation or veil an accusation, you ask a why question? For example, if something's messed up, you say, why did you do that? The result is you immediately put someone on the defense. Their guard goes up because you are as much accusing them and berating them as you are asking a question. As a side note, whether it's counseling, whether it's discipleship, whether it's coming alongside to encourage and exhort, if you are genuinely looking to come alongside someone, if you desire to imitate Christ in gentleness, then we need to work on how we communicate. We don't want to communicate like the Pharisees. You, know, you need to ask questions. That's, that is the right thing to do. Don't start by throwing out accusations. Don't start by making assumptions. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, gather information. But then when you are ready to begin speaking, when you are ready to begin asking questions, Learn to avoid, for the most part, why questions, because they come across as accusations. It is very difficult to use a why without it coming across as berating someone. It can be done, and there's an appropriate place, but it's hard and difficult, so it's better to avoid it. Instead, learn how to use what, when, or how. For example, rather than saying, why did you do that, say, when you did that, what went wrong? See how you're asking them to engage as opposed to accusing and berating. As much as possible, avoid why in its accusing tone, but especially if you're trying to exhort and correct. Well, these Pharisees are certainly not trying to exhort. They want to berate. They want to undermine this teacher that is upsetting conventional norms. So these Pharisees offer a thinly veiled accusation. Notice, too, that they don't go to Jesus directly whether it's out of fear or whether it's out of pure manipulation. They go to the disciples, perhaps thinking that they could put these disciples on the defensive, maybe even cause them to call their allegiance to Jesus into question by using the weight of their spiritual authority and condemning the actions of their teacher and leader. Whatever the reason, it was certainly not benign. These Pharisees were not there for the disciples' good. They were there to create division, to separate. 
Jesus had raised the ire and the eyebrows of the Pharisees because he was reclining at the table in the home of a tax gatherer with other tax gatherers and notorious sinners and participating in a meal. And if we're honest, we might have questioned them too. Wondering, what is Jesus doing with them? There's another question we need to ask here, which is, what is meant by the term sinners? On the one hand, we have the Pharisees calling the group tax collectors and sinners, probably implying that the tax collectors are a particularly notorious subset of the overall group of sinners. But if you look back at verse 10, you realize that it's not just the, ta- the Pharisees, but Matthew himself describes them as tax gatherers and sinners. So while it certainly bothered the Pharisees, it was not an inaccurate description. These were sinners. It wasn't just a pejorative statement on the part of the Pharisees. So what is meant? I mean, aren't we all sinners? Well, the answer is yes. However, the use of sinners here is more of a descriptive term than a theologically precise term. We use words like that all the time in different ways. What is meant here by sinners are those who blatantly violate the law of God over and over again with no remorse and no repentance. This may have included prostitutes as well as those who engage in blatant and unrepentant sinful acts. Like the tax collectors who extorted, stole, and sometimes physically harmed persons. Now, the, the question is, why did it bother the Pharisees so much? To answer that question, we also need to look at the significance of feasting and taking meals together. And while there's some overlap with how we do that now, it's helpful to also note some of the societal customs of first century Judaism. Feasting and eating together was a, often a sign of shared commitment and values, especially with the Pharisees. Unless it was clear that you were attacking the person and questioning them, you didn't sit down to enjoy a meal with them, certainly not one where you reclined together, like we find here. It was often a sign of acceptance. That's not too far removed from how we often have meals. We enjoy meals and getting together with one another to grow the intimacy, to grow the fellowship and the acceptance. However, the Pharisees had gone to great lengths to exclude and marginalize those who engaged in unrepentant sin or breaking of their religious laws, these sinners. And yet here was Jesus eating and dining with them. Someone who had the esteem of the people was undermining everything they stood for. Jesus' table fellowship was uniquely inclusive and it was filled with grace and gentleness. The Pharisees are also people. They were probably responding a little bit out of shock and hurt at their exclusion, particularly when they observed the types of persons they had just been passed over for. Here's the most popular guy in Galilee right now, and he didn't invite us to dinner. Not only did he not invite us, look who he invited. So maybe there was a little bit of personal hurt and vindictiveness and what they wanted it to do. So how do they respond? By this thinly veiled accusation against Jesus and his integrity. Directed at the disciples, not even Jesus himself. And by the way, this is classic manipulation. 
to try and undermine the credibility of a person by talking to all those around them without addressing them directly. You may remember Absalom, David's son. He turned the heart of the people away from his own father, David, by standing in the city gate, intercepting people on their way to see David, saying, David, you know, he's too busy for you. Doesn't really care about you. I do. Talk to me. Let me, let me help you. David's just too busy for you. And over time, what did he do? Scripture tells us that he turned the hearts of the people away from David and ultimately led a rebellion, and David had to flee from his own kingdom for a time. Here the Pharisees are seeking to undermine Jesus' credibility with his disciples. However, whether the disciples report it to him, whether Jesus overhears, or like last week, Jesus knows what's in their hearts, Matthew reports simply Jesus' response. And Jesus' response exposes the spiritual malpractice and the hypocrisy of these spiritually abusive leaders. In verses 12 through 13, Jesus starts by agreeing with the Pharisees, by noting that there is indeed a need for a physician here. He does not brush off their accusation, but embraces it as an accurate observation that these are indeed sinners. They need a physician. We've already noted that close connection between sin and sickness. And Jesus continues this analogy through his employment of this figure of speech when he says, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus' response borrowed a common aphorism from the ancient world, a well-known figure of speech and saying. Now, apart from agreeing that they were sinners who are sick and in need of a physician, what else was Jesus meaning by this? I mean, was he actually saying that the Pharisees are the spiritually healthy ones here? They are indeed righteous? Well, we immediately want to say, of course not. That can't be what Jesus meant. But how do we know that? Well, we know that because of what Jesus says next. And what Jesus says next allows us to really reword, if we want to just understand this, what he was really saying by using that common, well-known saying is that, I did not come for those who think they are healthy, but for those who know they are sick. Notice, the Pharisees had called him teacher, right? To the disciples, they said, why does your teacher do this? So Jesus decides to teach them a lesson. They're going to call me a teacher. I'm going to be a teacher. When Jesus says, go and learn, this was also a well-known saying. It was a very common rabbinic expression for Torah study. In other words, it's what the rabbis would do in school to the little kids. Go and learn. Jesus is mocking them a bit, ridiculing them, treating them like little school children who need to go and study because you don't know. You call me teacher, I'll instruct you. Go and learn. And Jesus, in doing that, makes a reference, and he points them to, he gives them the directions. He hands them a map saying, here is where you go to learn, and where does he go? He goes to Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. Go and learn this. He knew they would have known this was from the prophet Hosea. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Matthew that we've seen a reference to 
what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, right? We've seen it many other times. There's already, we're nine and a half chapters in, and we have seen numerous references to the Old Testament. And if you remember, when we see these references, these, whether it's a word, a phrase, an entire verse, a clause, you remember it's not just that one clause that our attention is to be brought to. It's to the context, the theology, what is being taught in and around this phrase, this word. It's linking. It's that word and that phrase, that sentence, that verse is used to link us back, to take us back, ground us in the theology, in this case of Hosea. Why don't you go and turn there with me, if you would, to the book of Hosea. Take a left in your Bibles. It's right after the book of Daniel. Hosea is a fascinating book, demonstrating God's mercy and his patience and calling on wayward Israel and later even Judah to respond. As you find Hosea, go to chapter 4, because it's there in chapter 4 that key themes related to the spiritual state of the nation comes out. Now, while you're turning there, I just want to make a quick note. I preach and teach and do most of my study from the New American Standard Bible. And I greatly appreciate the work of the translators and find it very reliable and excellent translation. But having worked through this text numerous times myself, having translated the Hebrew, I believe the English Standard Version does a much better job with this text that I'm going to read. So I'm actually going to read from the English Standard Version when I read this text. It's rare to find such a different translation between faithful English texts, but the Hebrew of Hosea, particularly the Hebrew of Hosea 4, is really complex. Really complex. Combined with it, prophecies often written with poetry and figures of speech which add to the complexity. But listen carefully as I read from Hosea 4, beginning of verse 1 through verse 6, and pay attention to what it says about spiritual leaders and spiritual authorities. Hosea says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. He is bringing a case. He is setting up the court. He's calling everyone his witnesses. There is no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. By the way, mark those words, faithfulness, steadfast love, and knowledge of God for when we turn in a minute to Hebrew, uh, Hosea 6.6. 6. Instead, what is there? There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bonds. There's a lie and they break their promises. And bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns. All who dwell in it languish. Also, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. And God had done this by bringing drought and pestilence and plagues to try and shake the people of Israel out of their religious stupor and bring them back to him to get their attention. But notice what he says in verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. Now, if you have the New American Standard, I realize it sounds different there. But I think the English Standard has it absolutely correct. Let no one contend, let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. 
and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you, and the you here are the priests and the religious leaders, have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Did you get that? The destruction of the people. The reason for the lying, for the bloodshed, for the murder, for the stealing, for the adultery. All of this is laid at the feet of the priests, the spiritual leaders. And God says through Hosea, the blame starts with you. You will incur a stricter and greater judgment. Well, the Pharisees would have been well aware of this condemnation against the spiritual leaders throughout Hosea. Now, turn to the right a couple chapters to Hosea 6. Look down at verse 6. There we read what Jesus quotes to those Pharisees. He says, For I delight in loyalty, that is steadfast love, rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Well, what does that mean? Does God not care about sacrifice? Does he not care about appropriate worship? Well, of course he does. But what he's saying is you've missed the point. I don't want just a superficial worship. I want all of you in worship. By making reference to what they lack, to this loyalty, this loyal love, this steadfast love, Jesus has just equated these religious leaders, these Pharisees, to the failed and false leaders, the spiritually abusive leaders of Hosea's day. Jesus tells these experts in the law, these PhDs in the Torah, that they need to become students again. As one commentator note, they're like they, the Pharisees, are like the apostates of old who thought that their horizontal relationships had nothing to do with their vertical relationship to God. I can live my life however I please. I can treat people however I want, sinner, godly alike. I can treat them however I want, but as long as I offer my sacrifices, as long as I offer my burnt offerings, everything's okay. They ignored all of the teaching which really taught that the way we treat others shows our true relation to God. And that is not just a New Testament concept. That is over and over again throughout the Old Testament, beginning in Deuteronomy. Really goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, doesn't it? In Isaiah's time, the spiritual leaders thought that they could continue their abuse of persons, this abusive leadership, and it would have no effect upon their spiritual worship and relationship with God. Those priests and leaders of Hosea's day did not have a heart of mercy towards sinners, but were responsible for creating more sinners. And Jesus says the Pharisees have just demonstrated that they are exactly like those priests. In other words, if these Pharisees are so healthy, then as spiritual leaders, they should be providing healing. Why then are they doing nothing to help the sick persons? Why are they standing aloof? Why are they removing themselves from those who are hurting, who are sick? Why are they committing spiritual malpractice? These spiritual leaders, these Pharisees are willing to stand by as these persons, these sinners, 
created in the image of God, perish in their sinful state, and even help them on their way by refusing to preach a message of repentance to them because they're sinners. They make no attempt to bring them near, to turn their hearts toward God. Their attitude lacks compassion. They belong instead among the spiritual leaders Hosea condemned, which would have been a startling accusation for these outwardly religious Pharisees. Notice the startling comparison with Matthew. Matthew, this newly converted and believing disciple, immediately hosts a banquet and invites the sinners in. Those who have been ignored by the religious establishment so that they might hear the good news. I hope this makes you a little uncomfortable. Made me a little uncomfortable. As a whole, I think the American church struggles to love well and show compassion. Many struggle to share the gospel with persons demonstrating flagrant disregard for God's instructions. Instead, we're a little more comfortable. We'd rather spend our time, even our evangelistic efforts, with persons that are at least somewhat moral, that are maybe easier to talk to, that don't make us feel so uncomfortable. Because their lives don't blatantly run against our sensibilities. However, we need to guard against this sinful temptation, because that's what it is. We must ensure that we are also focused on those that are clearly sinners, those living in obvious rebellion against God. We need to show love and kindness. We don't need to be known, first and foremost, for our political stances towards these things. We need to be known by our love and our mercy and the hope of the gospel toward them. Jesus ate with these persons. He spoke with them. He was gentle toward them. He never condoned their sin, never accepted their sin, but he was gentle and he was merciful. We're in the midst of Pride Month. Our culture is doing everything it can to normalize that which is sinful before God. But rather than responding in anger, are you sad and grieved? Are you moved to love and compassion? Are you able to use this as an opportunity to demonstrate gentleness and mercy and even love without condoning the sin? If Jesus were ministering in our culture today, I think he would shock many comfortable churchgoers just as much as he did the Pharisees of his day. Rather than treating sinners as beyond hope and to be spurned, Jesus treats them as needy and able to be helped by a physician. They are not beyond help. In Jesus' closing statement in verse 13, Jesus is not calling these Pharisees righteous. Rather, he's acknowledging their view of themselves. They thought they were righteous. We've talked about this before. They don't believe they're in need of any help. So Jesus turns his attention away from them. Now, he never neglects them entirely. We have examples of Nicodemus and others. So Jesus never abandoned them. But unless they acknowledged their need, they weren't answering the call of discipleship. This lesson must have sunk in deeply with Paul. Pharisee of Pharisees. 
Because he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15 saying, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. There are persons today who believe they have sinned too much. That God cannot love anyone like them. And unfortunately, too many in the church make it seem like that is exactly right. This passage shows how and why that is so wrong. It is precisely the person who recognizes how needy they are, how sick they are, that Jesus is calling. Just as Paul observed in writing to Timothy. It's those who think lightly of their sins or do not consider themselves a sinner are those who have not experienced the transforming power of God who are the hardest of hearts. If there's any who believe that they are beyond the reach of God, they think they have sinned too much, there is no such thing. The blood of Jesus Christ is efficacious for the worst of sins and sinners. The call for you this morning, if that is anywhere near your mindset, is to repent. Turn to Jesus, your Savior, your healer, the physician of your soul, who can heal it instantly and bind up the wounds. For those of us who claim to be disciples, we need to be wary of the danger of becoming like these Pharisees. Osborne notes, too many of us are Pharisees at heart. Hypocrites who talk the talk but do not walk the walk. It is easy to become churchified. That is, to perform all the external rituals but fail to have a heart for God and others. The Pharisees loved only their own kind but had no mercy or love for the despised in society. He goes on to say a true biblical church will make efforts to have a community-wide ministry that shows God's love to all around this is true for ministry both outside and inside the church. Practically, begin with your neighbors. Start individually looking for opportunities to reach out, to spend time with those who are sinners. The church is us. It's not this ambiguous organization that you wait for it to do stuff. It's you. It's me. What are you doing to reach your community, your neighbors? We need to be careful that we aren't afraid and, and banish any fear we have of somehow becoming infected with their sin. The doctor does not avoid the patient because they are sick. The paramedic doesn't turn away from a victim out of fear of developing the same wounds. We should be careful not to sin or to fall into sin, but we should not avoid sinners out of some fear of defilement. Paul had to correct this understanding with the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world, though. You misunderstood me. Or were the covetous, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. For you would, have, you would have to go out of the world. That is, you would have to die. You would have to leave this world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. In other words, I never intended, never implied, never meant avoid 
the ungodly and the sinners of the world. They are the very ones that need to know of the great physician. As we consider this text, as we close this morning, let us resolve together to ensure that we are not becoming so comfortable in our churches that we are afraid to reach out to the lost, to those who are obviously in need, to those that make us uncomfortable. Our society is becoming more and more polarized on every side, where persons are beginning to shut off and shut down anybody who doesn't think, act, talk exactly like them. It's not just the church, but the church is doing it too. And that should be the last entity to be doing this. On our part, let us train our minds to have compassion and sorrow for those who are spiritually sick, not horror and condemnation. And I'll leave you with one very practical way to begin doing this. And then you're going to have to think carefully about what other ways it needs to be applied. But one very practical way is start praying for the person as soon as you see them. Whether it's an abortion advocate, someone caught up in substance abuse or sexual sin, learn to love them by praying for them. Then practice speaking in gentleness, sharing the gospel, offering hope. It is very hard to continue hating or being fearful of someone you are praying for. So start there. And then pray that the Lord would motivate you, would make you attuned and aware of persons and situations. Have you ever learned something new and then suddenly you start to see it everywhere you look? It's because you've been made aware of it. It was always there. Pray that the Lord would make you aware of how many persons there are in your life, in your neighborhood, around you, that you can be sharing the gospel with. No matter how uncomfortable it may make you feel, no matter how uncomfortable their lives may be, you're not going to catch the sickness. Learn to speak in gentleness. Really, the admonition to us this morning is exactly what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Hopefully it's not because we have the heart of the Pharisees, but we need the same reminder to go and learn what it means that he desires compassion and not sacrifice. That we would be gentle and lowly of heart. That we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. And that our lives, how we live each and every day, would add authenticity to our worship to the songs that we sing, to the conversations we have when we join together on Sunday morning. Because when you come on Sunday morning, if you have been living your life in disobedience, not showing compassion, not showing gentleness, arguing, creating strife, disobedient to God, in this or in any other area, your worship is no better than those false religious leaders and the Pharisees of Jesus' day when you show up on Sunday morning. And God said he doesn't want it. Let's pray. Father, this is a sobering text for us this morning. But I pray that it would work within each of us, that your spirit would faithfully do his work to convict us, to make us 
attuned and sensitive to where we need to be doing a better job of proclaiming the gospel, of caring for those around us, of reaching out. Help us to look for opportunities. Each of us are in different phases of life. We have different opportunities. We have different people we know, different neighborhoods we live in. It will look different for each and every one of us, but help us to be faithful. Help us to prayerfully, carefully, and thoughtfully engage in the world around us. And Father, may many come to know the glory of your kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel from each of us. In your name, amen.